So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you're a God that uh, is one who's given us your word and uh, that we are not individuals that are wandering, trying to figure out uh, what your plan is, who you are, what salvation is, that you've given us uh, everything we need to know for life and godliness in the word of God. So we we thank you for that. We pray that uh, you would be with us as we go into another passage that's talking about things yet future to us, but uh, you've given us uh, what your plan is. And as God, you have the strength to be able to, to make these things happen. So we're thankful that you're a God that's in control no matter what goes on in this world. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that uh, you may have picked up on the way in and may not have picked up on the way in is a small chart that I have here. It's a very, very basic chart um, of end time events. It doesn't even have any of the other things I could clutter it with. Uh, sometimes you can clutter these with verse references and everything else. This is just a very clean copy of uh, what's going on in the future. Um, as uh, you note, this is not original with me. It's taken from Understanding End Time Prophecies um, by Paul Ben Ware. Uh, that is a book. It's probably about 150, 200 pages in length, but it'll answer pretty much any question you have on end time events um, and uh, does a very thorough job with it. Or you have another book out there. Um, I don't know if it's still available. It may only be used, uh, but a book called Charting the End Times uh, by a man by the name of Tim LaHaye. Perhaps if you've heard the Left Behind series, you've heard that name before. Uh, he and a, a man by the name of Dennis Ice came up with a book that was basically charting what the, the Bible says on end time events and the prophecies of the Old Testament and the like. And it, it's an easy read. When I taught end-time events uh, for uh, teenagers, I used that book, um, Charting the End Times uh, and that. But what this gives to you is just a, a nice kind of clean copy of what we're talking about. When you see the statement right now, we're in the church age. It's been going on for 2,000 years now, um, almost 2,000, not quite uh, just short of that. But um, Jesus left. He said, I'll build my church. He starts at 10 days after he leaves uh, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So we were in the church age. Uh, the next event on the calendar is that the Lord's going to take those that are Christians out, that are part of the church, that they are going to go uh, and be with him in heaven when the tribulation is going on. That is not to say, okay, well, we understand this. Uh, when people are raptured out, they're raptured out body, soul, and spirit. Those that have died in Christ, their bodies that are in the ground will meet them in the air. And so they're enjoying heaven during this time. That's not to say that during the tribulation there aren't people getting saved that are killed. You say, where do they go? Their souls and spirits go to heaven. Okay, they, you know, that's going on. But also during that time, you're going to have people that reject God, and as they have been for, throughout time rejecting God, and you go, where do they go? It's a place called Hades or hell. Okay, it's a real place. I mean, it's not, it's not fake, it's real. Um, but whenever you see the word hell or Hades in uh, the New Testament, uh, it's referring to this temporary holding spot. And it's not pleasant. Luke 16 makes it very clear. It is not pleasant at all. Uh, it is a place, a place of torture uh, and torment uh, and the like. You have the tribulation going on, and then the Lord's going to come back at the end of the seven years and come back to earth, and he's going to have a judgment there. It's going to be a judgment we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at a parable called the parable of the sheep and the goats. 
and uh, it's right after Matthew 25 where we're at tonight, so if you want to read ahead, feel free. Um, but uh, the Lord comes back, he judges the nations, those uh, individuals that don't believe in him, they're sent to Hades, and those that believe go directly into the kingdom to enjoy what earth should have been like if mankind hadn't sinned. And the Lord's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's what that word millennium means there. It's a thousand years. And at the end of that, you're going to have Satan released. He's held for a thousand years there. He's going to be released. And you're going to find that people, even though they had a chance to meet with Jesus and otherwise, you're going to have some that are going to rebel at the end and go, we don't want this. And immediately what's going to happen is you're going to have a judgment. And what we find at that judgment that's known as the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, um, is that the sea is going to give up their dead, death and hell is going to give up their de- the dead. Those are all the dead that have died without Christ. And they're going to be brought before God in judgment. What you're going to find out at that judgment is this. People are going to be judged on whether they're found in the Lamb's book of life. If your name's not found in the Lamb's book of life, you're then going to be judged on your works. You read what it says. Either you're not, not found in the Lamb's book of life, then there's a book of works. And what you'll be shown there is that your works came far short of the glory of God. In fact, I'm guessing you won't have to go but one or two pages in the book of your life, and it will be very clear that you're a sinner. And what happens then is these individuals who now are together, body, soul, and spirit, are cast into the lake of fire. Okay? This is, this is not you know, some sort of, you know, you get a second chance, you may get out. No. Uh, think of Hades right now as a, a holding cell. Now, before a person goes to uh, court and, and gets judged, if they're really... Uh, you know, bad prisoner, you get held in jail. But when you finally get judged, what happens? You get sent to the penitentiary. Neither one of them are pleasant. So it is with Hades. It's not a place that you want to be at. It's a place of torment, place of fire, a uh, place of memory. It is a, pay, a place of pain. And so is the lake of fire. That's the end for those that have not believed in God. Remember, death is a separation. That's what it is. You have people who are eternally separated from God. That's why it's called a second death. Um, but for those that have believed, they go into what is known as the new heaven and the new earth. They get to enjoy uh, a clean copy of the earth, uh, and you have this heavenly city that comes down on the earth. You read that in Revelation 21 and 22. So you have all of that generically, but you have it in a chart form. What we've been going over in the parables that we've been talking about is that the Lord's really preaching to, even though he's telling all of us that we need to be ready for the Lord's return, it may be that he takes us to death. Okay, that, That's the Lord's coming to get us. Uh, it may be at the rapture he comes to you know, get some. Uh, but sooner or later, you get to this tribulation, and the Lord is definitely coming back at the end. This is his second coming. He came to earth the first time as a baby uh, to be a savior. The second time he comes to be a sovereign, to be a ruler, to rule and reign on the earth. Um, but he's coming back, and what Jesus has been talking about in the parables is warning people to be ready, especially for this event when the second coming happens, when the Lord shows up. And we've been talking about all these passages about being watchful, alert, prepared. He's really preaching to these individuals who now suddenly find themselves, will find themselves in the middle of this tribulation and just say, 
you know what, you need to be saved, believe on the Son, but you need to realize He's coming back. And there's very little time for you to get accomplished what you need to. And you go, what's that? Let others know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them uh, and the like. And so there's this watchfulness that's supposed to be going on until the Lord comes back. So that chart right there, you have the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. And you say, that's complicated. Yeah, that's why we have a chart. I like charts because, you know, it puts it in picture form. That picture is more than a thousand words, and I probably already said a thousand at this point. So, um, but anyhow, that chart's there, but I do recommend the book that's there. Uh, It's just, it's a good read to understand all the issues when it comes to interpreting end time events and just looking at it in the scripture and, um, and then charting the end times is the other book there. So let's get into Matthew chapter 25, okay? Let's look at this parable that we have here known as the parable of the talents. And with these parables, uh, we have been looking at them, and they have, uh, the previous ones in Matthew 25, have been containing charges or challenges to be watchful, faithful, prepared. Uh, This parable here contains those themes, but also emphasizes the ideas of rewards and judgment. Okay, it's at this point, that's that blank that's there, that you have judgments uh, as a part of this that's really the emphasis that you are one day going to be judged. And um, the last parable that we're going to look at, was the next week's the last parable, it's the end of our study on parables. You say, what are we doing next? I don't know yet. I've thought about a few different things, but we will see. Um, but with the parable next week, with the parable of the sheep and the goats, that's talking about this judgment where you know, if you're not prepared, you haven't uh, met the Savior in the sense of salvation, uh, you won't be a part of the kingdom. You, you don't get to be a part of it. So uh, it'll talk about this. This one is shifting from the idea of being watchful and waiting, uh, prepared uh, to the fact that there's a judgment when the Lord comes back, and uh, it's serious. I mean, it's not just a, eh, okay. No, it's a serious because the consequences for not being ready for that judgment are eternal. And uh, so this, is, uh, this parable that we have of the talents is <clears throat> one f- talking specifically more about judgment than anything. So when you have that note there, it says the talents, okay? I want you to just uh, understand here, if you've been with us uh, for any length of time, it would have been about seven lessons ago, eight lessons ago, uh, we went over in Luke chapter 19 a parable called the parable of the minas. Sounds very similar to this one. You go to minas, money. What are talents? Money. Master leaves. He gives money. Gives money. Yeah, it sounds the same. But realize in Luke chapter 19 that that parable was given at a completely different time. It's when Jesus hasn't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. He's on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he tells the parable of the minas. It's, it's very close in, in the sound, but there are some different details. This one was given, and you have the blank there, this one's given on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Okay, the Olivet Discourse is on Tuesday, uh, and so this parable of the talents is a different one than the parable of the minas. Different time, different subject being talked about, um, and uh, the like. So don't get confused by that. You're like, oh, I've heard this before. No, you, you did hear it before, but it was a different parable. This is a different parable because some of the details that are given. But we, we did go over a parable that is very, very similar to this. But let's go ahead and read uh, this parable through Matthew chapter 25. 
and verse number 14. Uh, we'll start there. He makes a statement. Uh, For the kingdom of heaven as is, is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey, or immediately took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckons uh, with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, Thou delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. As Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Verse 22. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Lord. Verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a, a hard man and austere man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And went, there, and went and hid my talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have, ha- have received mine own with usury, or the idea is interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and to he that shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye that unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." One of the things that I have to deal with just before we get into this is to have you understand something that I didn't quite understand when I was a teenager and listen to someone preach this passage. You say, what was that? Okay, you're preaching to teenagers and they're looking at life and uh, they've got all these things that they're supposed to be doing with their life and you have a sermon uh, being preached. Don't waste your talent. You know what? I have to say, whoever preached that to me, and I don't remember exactly who, who did, they did not preach what it said in the passage. Because in that, they were saying, oh, a talent. Oh, that's an ability. Okay? We have that blank there. A talent in this passage is not referring to ability. It's not referring to an ability that a person has. Okay, people hearing this, uh, you know, and, and it would have been in Greek, so it wouldn't have been the word talent, but uh, when they would have uh, heard this word and Jesus said it, they would have immediately uh, considered this to be talking about a measurement of weight. 
Okay? And you go, what was the measurement of weight? Well, a talent back then weighed approximately 75 pounds. Okay, that's about the weight of what a talent was. And you could have a, a, a rock or a piece of metal that was a talent, and it would be about 75 pounds. And what you would do is you would measure out your gold and your silver. You know, you're going to give somebody a talent of gold or silver. You would then weigh it out and in comparison to what that is, and then you would give them a talent of gold a talent of silver. Uh, and in looking at today's money in comparison to what that would be worth, uh, it's probably, as some estimate, that this man in the story is giving away uh, at least a million dollars. Okay, that would be the modern day value of a talent. Okay, so when people are hearing this story, they're going, the man gave away five million dollars? He gave away $3 million. He gave away $1 million to these individuals to use. Uh, and you're going, okay, that is the, the, the amazement of the story. Imagine just giving $5 million to somebody and say, you use it and come back, and I expect there to be a good investment. You, know, you don't do that. Uh, you know, that's not wise uh, in today's uh, thing. You really want to make sure that the person is going to do this. But in this story, $5 million three million, one million, he gives them to the servants, and he goes off in a far country. And it says there that each man received according to his ability. Okay, there's the word ability. You know, the Lord gives it and he realizes that one might have the ability to handle the five million, and one might have the ability to handle the three million, and one he knows has the ability to handle the one million dollars. Um, but you know, he, he just, he gives this out and you go, well, that's the difference in this. He goes, okay, this person's got more ability, more opportunities, more than likely this person doesn't have as many. And so the Lord distributes on the basis of what he knows the ability and talents of those individuals, as we would say, uh, are. Now, when you get uh, done with this story, the first two servants were diligent in their use and investment and got a hundred percent return. Okay, that's the blank that said they got a hundred percent return. You're going, that's pretty good. You know, I think today even on, in investing, unless you're you know playing the stock market or something like that, I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, yeah, we found a a, a CD, a certificate of a deposit, and you can get five five percent on that. I'm like, well, that's pretty good. And your savings accounts, you know, not giving you that much, and your checking account doesn't give you anything. That's a you know that's at least a good interest rate. Uh, to be gaining money off of that. But here, these individuals, we're not told how long they have, but by the time they're done, they've doubled what they've been given. And, uh, of course, you have the last servant who merely buried his investment in the ground. You're going, it's not going to increase. You're like, mm-hmm, it's not going to increase. Uh, now, verse 19. You have the return and judgment. The first two servants come to the master. Their statements and the master's response to them are the same. You, you, you Reading through this, did you catch this? The Lord's statement to the first person and the second person, exactly the same. Okay, there's no difference uh, in the response. There's no difference in actually how the servants approach uh, in the story. And you say, well, what's the response uh, to the Lord to these individuals? And they come and give the report, and they said, we've doubled what we were given. Well, he comments, first of all, on the fact that what they had done was good. They says to both of them, well done, good job. I mean, that's what we would say in our culture, fantastic. 
And then he makes a comment about their character, and he says this. He comments on their character that they were good and faithful servants. Okay? Uh, they are individuals who know who this master is. They know what he's like, and they faithfully serve him with the, tra- deal, the, the, the thing that they've been entrusted with. They deal with it properly. They make the gain that they're supposed to get, and they are faithful because they are individuals that know what their master's like, and they go, this is what he wants, and they faithfully serve him uh, even though he's not there, but they know he's coming back. Okay, they're, they're doing this in faith that he's going to come back. It's not that he's not going to make it back. They're, they're believing this. Now, as a result, they would receive more responsibilities. That's what you find uh, in verse number uh, 21. That statement, it says this, you've been a good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You know, what's he say? Well, you've now got uh, more responsibility. What I'm going to do, because you've been faithful in this, I'm going to give you more opportunities, more responsibilities, because you've shown yourself uh, faithful individuals, and you're going to be able to enjoy what the master's enjoying. You're going to be able to be a part of the things that he enjoys in life. You're going to be able to enjoy them. Like, okay, you know, a person who's a servant, to suddenly be able to enjoy what the master's enjoying fantastic. And then you get to the third servant. And this is where the emphasis ends on the parable, which is really the emphasis of the whole thing. The third servant, as you have in your notes there, top of the back page, third servant came and subtly charged the master with making things difficult. It's kind of passive-aggressive, you would say. He, he, he's accusing the master of saying, well, you're the type of individual who, who can squeeze things out of nothing and, and you really work hard and you gain money where you know no one can find it and you're that type of individual uh, and you made me afraid. I was afraid to do anything with what you gave to me because I was afraid I'd mess up. So um, he's basically starting off by saying, it's your fault. Yeah, that's not a good way to start. Um, and he had um, this, in his fear, he buried his talent. But then you have the statement, ironically, he was looking for approval from his master for whom he did nothing. He's, he's, he's coming to him and going, well, I buried it, but he's, he's hinting at the fact, yeah, you're going to give me approval for what I did, aren't you? Doing nothing? I mean, that's kind of his expectation, even though he's just accused the master of being difficult to work for, and he's now expecting this, and ironically, he's going, well, he's going to give me approval. Well, he's not going to give him approval. It's the exact opposite of what he expects he's going to get for this. And, and you even read the story. I, I caught this uh, reading through it this morning. I didn't put it in the notes because I did those yesterday, but um, he tells the master, oh, I buried it in the ground and it's over there. He doesn't even bring it. <laughs> that's the thing. He doesn't bring it. He tells the master, you can go get it yourself. It's over there. I buried it. I'm like, wow, how rude. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he's done that. You say, how does the master respond? Your notes say this. The master responded with a statement about his character that he was a wicked and lazy servant. I mean, he's, he's part of the man's group, but now he's saying, you're an evil servant. You're really not a servant of mine, and you're lazy. He then gave what the servant uh, could have done at bare minimum. He actually goes, okay, 
You know what type of individual I am, but you know what? You could have, instead of burying it, just go and take it in a bank and let it sit there and gain interest. If you had just done that, I mean, nothing with it, not investing, figuring out how to maybe, you know, no, if you just had somebody else get you interest, at least you'd have gotten interest off of it, but you didn't do that. You didn't even do the bare minimum. He could have invested the one talent and gained some interest. So then you have this, this statement at the end, uh, just before the conclusion, says this, several things result from this reckoning. The servant's talent was given to the first servant. You go, why the first servant? I don't know. It's not explained. He could have given it to the second servant. Okay, whatever, but he does. He says, okay, give it to him. He's going to be responsible. Let him have it. The evil servant was taken, uh, had taken away what little, the evil servant had taken away what little he had. He ultimately would not enjoy what the master enjoyed, but he would be separated. And that's an important word, okay? It's blank, the blank's there, but separated, okay? And we'll explain why this is an important word here. Uh, Forever in a place of extreme torment. So, you go, what is the Lord trying to teach? Remember, parables are stories illustrating a truth. Okay, uh, not all the details matter in the parable uh, because you're, you're trying to get across a major point typically with a parable. And with this, you see when the Lord comes back to earth, you say, when's that? On that chart you have, you know, at the end of the tribulation, he comes back, okay? Uh, when he comes back, what's he going to be doing? He's going to be looking for those who have taken up uh, responsibility for the Lord, And you say, what's that major responsibility? The major responsibility for these servants would be to share the good news, or we'd say the gospel. I mean, it's shortened up. It's the same thing, good news, gospel. Um, And you say, why would they share the good news? Because they've experienced it themselves. Okay, they've experienced this themselves, that they've experienced the good news, and you say, well, what are they going to do with this? They're going to share it with others. I mean, that's, you know, the expected thing. When you find out good news, do you hoard it and hide it? You know, typically you tell others and go, hey. You know. I mean, we do this when we have, you know, things in this life that happen. You, know. you go to the store and they're giving out free TVs. You know, anyone that comes to the store gets a free TV. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to go tell, you know, anyone in your household, you go get one. They're giving out free TVs. I mean, you, just this is how we live. Well, understand this. We've been given the greatest gift, and that is that we have the hope of eternal life in heaven with God forever because of what His Son has done on the cross. Jesus Christ died in our place. Wonderful truth. Okay, so you would expect us to, in life, try and you know, live this out, that Christ has changed me and given me a hope, and that you're going to share this with others. You figure that's what people will be doing. That's what the Lord is going to be looking for in individuals. Uh, it's not a work salvation, but a person who's been saved is going to be living like this. So that's what you have. They're responsible for sharing the good news. Some will have greater opportunities, but the responsibilities would be the same. Do you realize that some people have a larger opportunity in giving the gospel than others? I mean, think about a person who's confined to bed. You say their circle of opportunities to be able to share the gospel with other people. Do, you know, do they have you know, a whole lot of opportunities? Not so much. What about a person who's got the opportunity to be 
uh, with a lot of people all the time. They say the opportunities are greater. Okay. But the, you know, the responsibility is still the same is to, to live your life out and display the fact that you know, I've got a, a, a hope. I mean, the statement there, to refuse to do this work would show a carelessness and a lack of understanding of who and what the Lord has done, what Jesus has done. It's a carelessness. I mean, this servant doesn't, you know, he's been given a million dollars. Okay, I'm going to bury it in the ground. Do you not, do you not realize what you have? Um, and it really goes to the fact that you have some people that don't really understand. Here's what you have. God has offered you his son for salvation. You can have salvation just by believing on the son. And for this individual, the lazy servant, he's the one who goes, hmm, well, just bury it. I, it's not really important to do anything with it. Um, it's okay. Now, the faithful servants at the Lord's return will have responsibilities in the kingdom that the Lord will set up. You say, what happens for these individuals who are here on earth when the Lord comes back? Now, I'll side note something else later. Um, But what about those individuals that are believing in Jesus Christ when he comes back? What happens for them? They go right into the kingdom the Lord's going to set up. And do you realize the kingdom time is going to be a thing that the master is enjoying, the Lord is enjoying? You go, why? Because earth is the way it was supposed to be. When, when, when God created this earth for man, man and woman and mankind, he created it to be a perfect environment for mankind to enjoy the things that grow, the animals to be able to communicate and fellowship with him. He created that originally. Well, what happens when man sins? You read the whole of the scripture and you find out, you know what, this world turns out to be a really bad place. There's war, sickness, sin. It's all over the place. It's really not the way it should be. Well, what happens when the Lord comes back? Well, you read the accounts in the Old Testament. You, you, you just talk about animal life. The lion lies down with uh, the lamb. A child can reach into a den of deadly snakes and not be bitten. You go, who would want to reach your hand into a den of snakes? I don't know. But that's what the scripture just talks about. The animal life is back to what it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Uh, People planting crops will catch up to the ones that are sowing or harvesting the crops from the previous year because it's just going to be overabundance that's going on there. There's no war. There's no fighting going on. There's no need for a police force. Uh, There's no need for major hospitals and the like because uh, the world is like what it's supposed to be for a thousand years. Can you imagine being in an environment like that? And, and to top it off, Jesus is here so he can directly fellowship with whoever here on earth. They can go and talk to him right in Jerusalem, be able to do this. You know, that's what brings the Lord delight. That you suddenly have this world that people can live in. He can fellowship with these individuals face to face, be able to do this, and that people get to participate in this. This brings joy to the Lord. And what he simply says is these individuals that he finds that are, you know, are saved, doing his work, when the kingdom gets set up, they get to go right in there and be a part of it and have some responsibilities. You go, what, are, what, what would you have as far as responsibilities in the kingdom? I don't know. I mean, when you have a perfect environment to be living in, how, you know, what can we do to help it out when you know, it's all arranged? Don't know, but that's what the Lord hints at here. But you think about this, the wicked servant will not joy any part of the, that kingdom. 
And we're going to look at next week this very fact that when these people, they may have survived the whole of the tribulation, but they haven't believed in God. They haven't believed in the Son. They just kind of like, you know, who needs Him? Even though they'll, they'll hear the testimony of witnesses, they'll hear 144,000 giving testimony to who Jesus Christ is. I mean, it's going to be hard to miss who Jesus Christ is during that time frame. Um, but they aren't going to receive them. You go, well, what happens to them? Well, they don't get to go into the joy of the Lord. They don't get to be a part of the kingdom. What happens is this, is that they are separated from God. And as we said, the word separate is important because that, if you understand death as a separation, then you understand what the word death is. These people are separated from God in a place called hell. They'll be there until the final judgment when they are called out of hell to stand at the great white throne judgment to answer for their life and then to be cast in the lake of fire. Kind of go, that's not really good, yeah. And understand, when you have individuals that are standing before God at that great white throne judgment, they've gotten a resurrection body. Now, right now, people in hell, it's their soul and spirit that is experiencing that. What you read in Revelation chapter 20, it says that bo- their bodies will be raised, whether it's the, they were in the sea, whether they were in the, disintegrated in the ground as dust, that it will call forth their body and they will have a new resurrection body. And you're going, well, wait a second, people who are followers of Christ are going to have new resurrection bodies. Mm-hmm. But our body is going to be able to enjoy the glories of heaven forever. You know, if we were to go to heaven right now in our sinful bodies, our bodies would not be able to handle it. It couldn't stand in the presence of God. But what the resurrection allows for is that for our body, soul, and spirit to be in the presence of God. Uh, but what you have is people at that, that tribulation, or excuse me, that, that last judgment, their, their body is resurrected, their soul and spirit is resurrected, or it comes from hell, stands before God, and they're, they're cast body, soul, and spirit into the lake of fire. Now you're going, well, wait a second, they're, they're, they're not dead because they have a body and they have their soul and spirit and it's all together. They can't be dead. But if you understand death as a separation, here you have these individuals who are forever separated from God. A God who's merciful, gracious, kind, loving, and he has done whatever he could to rescue mankind from themselves, and mankind's just gone. Don't need your help. We got this. And they've done this, and in eternity, what you have is people who are separated from God, and what Revelation calls it is that this is the second death. You go, but they got a body, soul, and spirit. How could they be dead? Well, that's because they're separated from God for eternity. That is the second death, and you don't want to be part of the second death because there's no, no opportunity to return. But in this case, what you have, the Lord just was saying, these people who are there go through all tribulation. You're kind of going, what a miserable time to be a part of if they haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they don't get to enter into this thing that Jesus is going to do here on the earth for a thousand years for people to enjoy what creation would have been like had you not had sin so rampant on the earth. So uh, it, it's a warning. I mean, you, you're going to miss out, and the judgment's serious. I mean, he, he says this, this person in the, the, the story separated out in the outer darkness, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a pleasant place. People that say, I'm going to go to hell to party with my friends. You aren't even going to be able to find your friends. You know, it's dark. 
and you're not going to be able to find anybody. If that, I mean, think about this. What did Jesus Christ suffer on the cross? Remember, when Jesus was on the cross, he was suffering our hell. Part, part of suffering on the cross was my God, when he said this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for the next three hours, there is darkness. And you read the account in the, the crucifixion, there is nothing that goes on. There's no mocking going on. There's none of this. There's a darkness that's there, and it's just Jesus suffering what it is to be alone. Because that's what hell is going to be like. There's a, and a, there you are alone, separated from God and everybody else, along with just the torment and the pain of everything else. But you know that you're not going to hell to enjoy being around other people. You're 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 going to be alone, separated from the grace of God. So it, it's 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 a serious thing. The Lord, you know, warns. He's going to warn again. One more, you know, parable about judgment. You're going, you know, really, can't we have some nice stuff? Well, because people don't realize at times the danger unless somebody says something. You know, and the Lord was wanting people to understand, don't take this casually, lightly. Uh, you know, I'm going to come back. You need to be prepared, ready, and um, ready in the fact that you've accepted his son. Yeah. Any questions? I mean, generally kind of straightforward, but anything? Yeah. No, it's a uh, judgment. The minas. Minas, yeah. Because he, he gives out minas, which are different. Oh, so that's not a million dollars. If I remember correctly, it was like 60 days wage or something like that. So if I remember correctly, what a mina was worth. But um, yeah, it's not as an, an incredible amount, but um It's, remember teaching that one, it's, it's more of a warning because you've got a bunch of people that think Jesus is about to set up his kingdom and what they don't understand that, listen, he's coming to die on a cross and to go away. And you, you know, need to understand that, that he's going to give you things that you need to be doing while he's away if you really believe he's coming back again. You know, he is coming again. So. Well, it was preached about a week before. The parable of the minas is about a week before. Yes, and then this. This is Tuesday, as we have the notes. It's Tuesday of the crucifixion week. That he does this during the Olivet Discourse. That Olivet Discourse is on the Tuesday, and you know, Good Friday, where Jesus Christ was crucified. This is the Tuesday of that week. He's given us. That is a week before. It's on the way to Jerusalem. It's on the way to Jerusalem. It's before the triumphant entry and everything. He's, he's, he's in Jericho. He's got to come up and, you know, he, it's, it's about a week before that that one's given. Yep. Yep. Steve? Just an observation. 
I find it interesting that the Lord did not say, Oh, I'm sorry you felt that way. I must have misrepresented somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think in our culture today, you know, where everything's about be kind, you know, it's mm -hmm. like there's an overemphasis on that. I mean, we, we would use the term today, you know, you're playing the victim card. You know, oh, you know, it was just too tough. You made it so tough, and it's not my fault. And you see, you know, the Lord's statement there, it's like, um, there was an answer here, and you just didn't bother to, to do it. You didn't take it. Um, yeah. So. It's a hard answer. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Did the third servant um, just bury the million dollars, and how did he use it? It's gold. They could, he could, un, you know, recover it. Well, you read the story. I mean, you just read the story. He goes, "I left it in the ground. It's over there. You can go get it." He just left it in the ground. He didn't even bother to bring it to the Lord when the Lord shows up. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, what kind of a, a guy is this? Um, and it's very common. I, I read just two weeks ago somebody in England uh, in the middle of their field dug up, you know, you know, thousands, well, not thousands, millions of dollars worth of coins that somebody just, you know, did they bury it there? Did they lose it there? You know, whatever, um, in the ground in the middle of the field. And it was fairly common practice since he didn't have banks as we know them. Um, and we, we're familiar with this from people in the 1920s, 30s, well, 30s, um, not putting money in banks, you know, hiding it in tin cans in their attic and, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. So, fairly common practice. <laughs>